So if you haven't, you can turn to 1 Samuel 22. Again, 6 to 23 will be the verses we focus on today. And uh, we're going to start in a way that might not sound very encouraging, but I, but I trust by the end that things will, things will be more encouraging, at least more encouraging than, than we'll start with here. Uh, so, so we can begin today by setting the context for our passage, and, and we can set the context for our passage by, by talking a little bit about bad days. Uh, now, when we start talking about bad days, immediately we know that, that to a certain degree, uh, bad days are a matter of perspective. Uh, for the four-year-old who breaks his favorite toy, the tears he cries reflect possibly the worst day of his life to date. And, and we understand that. When you're four years old, it's a very bad day when your favorite truck breaks. Uh, but as adults, if we happen to be looking on when this happens, we smile. We smile compassionately, but we smile uh, because we, we do know it's a matter of perspective. We know that life has hard days, and in the grand scheme of things, a broken toy doesn't really register, even though for the, for the poor little four-year-old boy, it, it is a very significantly awful day. But, but that's because bad days, generally speaking, are a matter of perspective. Uh, John Prine, the folk singer, he, he has a great chorus uh, to one of his songs where he, where he reflects on this perspective element of bad days and, and maybe you know but he sings that's the way the world goes around you know this song you're up one day the next you're down and he says it's a half an inch of water and you think you're going to drown that's the way that the world goes around right? so, so bad days are often a matter of perspective uh, things may not be great and we we may feel like the world is coming to an end like the four-year-old boy who breaks his favorite toy we may feel like we're drowning but really it's a half an inch of water and we think we're going to drown this is just this is just a, a perspective thing however we also know that while bad days can be a matter of perspective bad days can also exist in categories that transcend uh, the normal run-of-the-mill anxiety producing trouble um, in high school uh, we had a math teacher named Mr. Fobert. I don't know if I've told you about Mr. Fobert before, but Mr. Fobert was, was truly one of the, 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 the toughest and scariest men I think I've ever met. Um, he was probably around 50 years old at the time I had him for a teacher. He was a math teacher, and, and he, he developed, he developed a, a bit of a belly just because he walked around from morning to, or the beginning of, day, of the day to the end drinking Pepsi. I don't know how many Pepsis he, he drank. Every time I saw Mr. Fobert, he had a Pepsi with him. So, so he'd, he'd kind of developed this, uh, this situation there in his, in his midsection. However, he had to be one of the most sturdy and strongest men I, I'd ever encountered. So he would come over to help you with a math assignment and put his arm down on, your, down on your desk just to support himself. And you'd almost get hit by the muscles that popped out everywhere. I mean, he was, he was, a, he was an extremely sturdy man. And then Mr. Fobert had quite the history in that he'd done seven tours fighting on the ground in the Vietnam War. And, and he would be willing to talk about his experience from time to time, sometimes privately, sometimes he'd come into classes and talk about it. And on one occasion, he mentioned that the man who he'd been closest to in the war, uh, one, of, one of the point men in his platoon, um, and, and, and a man whom he'd served with on a couple of his tours, um, this man currently lived just about 45 minutes away. And so someone asked Mr. Fobert if he ever saw this person anymore. Mr. Fobert had talked about how, how close they'd been. They'd each saved one another's life on different occasions, and, and they, they came to trust each other very much. Um, so, so in the course of Mr. Fobert telling us about this, the natural question was, well, how, how often do you see each other? Do you still spend quite a bit of time together? Um, they'd been obviously so close. And Mr. Fobert responded to the question and told us that in the over 30 years he and this man had returned from war, where they were uniquely connected in life-saving ways, and in the over 30 years they'd been back, and even though they lived relatively close to one another, he said they'd only met up one time. 
And then somebody asked a follow-up question, why would that be? And, and he told them, he, he, he said um, that, that since they'd been through something so, so extremely difficult together, and, and since those days were what they were, he, he described it very specifically by saying that the days in Vietnam were just a different kind of bad days, and we can't bear to speak about it together. So those days in, in war were just a different kind of bad days, was how, was how he put it. I remember him, him talking about this vividly in, in, the, in the classroom. Because those memories uh, for Mr. Fobert, they reflected just a different kind of, of difficulty, a different kind of hardship. So, so we've got John Prime's perspective on bad days. It's a half an inch of water and you think you're going to drown and we can identify with that. We all have those, uh, th- those kind of days. But then we have, we have Mr. Fobert's experience and those are just a different kind of bad days. They're not the kind that you can necessarily put into perspective. They're just extremely painful. They're extremely hurtful. They're, they're, they're extremely weighty. They're, they're just categorically different. They're, they're dreadful kind of days. And as we encounter the rest of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, it, it's really the presence of a dreadful kind of bad day that's recounted for us here. It's a dreadful day. Um, here in this, in this passage, we have this wicked king who ultimately indulges a bad man's manipulative behavior and in the end sanctions the destruction of many people. So, so 1 Samuel 22, 6 to 23, it's not just a bad day, it's, it's a dreadful day. And as we approach this chapter in 1 Samuel, again, if we could, if we could put ourselves in the position of, of the Israelites witnessing these events in real time, living these kinds of things out, that there is a definite sense in which things are looking hopelessly grim already as we enter chapter 22. And so, so we read through a lot of this this morning, but, but at this point in the narrative, God has made a promise to David, a man after God's own heart. He's made a promise that David would be king. David is going to be a righteous king over the people of God to deliver them from their fears, all of these kinds of things. God has promised David the better king will rule. However, as chapter 22 opens, we have David, God's anointed king, escaping the clutches of the Philistines. So that's, that's, a, that's a positive. He got out of Gath where he was afraid he was going to be put to death. So he escaped. But where did he escape to? We're almost excited until we realize that David escaped to a cave. He didn't escape to a place of, of ruling over the people of God as we're, as we're looking forward to, as we're hoping for, as Saul still retains this, this wicked grip on the, on the royal seat in Israel. We're looking forward to David taking that spot. But even still, as this narrative begins, David escapes only to go into the cave. And then he cares for his parents. The prophet comes and he, he goes deeper into Israel. But even still, where is he? He's in the forest. He's still not on the throne. And, and, so, and, so, and so how are things going in the storyline so far? Here's David, the one promised uh, to take the throne. He's going to bring relief to the people of God. But, but where is David now? Now he's, now he's in the forest and those around him hardly make up what we would consider a functional royal cabinet. Right? Those who are bitter of soul, as the text told us, we looked at that last week, those in distress, those in debt, those who would, we would least expect to be useful to the king, though of course they become extremely useful, those who we would least expect to be useful to the king, they're with him. As far as things go at this point, things don't seem very good at all, because the one anointed to be king by Samuel is still on the run from Saul. No doubt the Philistines aren't happy with him either. David's on the run. He's got a price on his head. Those around him don't seem like the most promising royal cabinet. He's in the darkness of the cave, and then he's in the forest of Judah. Things just seem uh, continually hopeless. And then we read the first part of our passage today, and we realize that hopeless doesn't even begin to describe the, the dire circumstances that take place next. 
things just keep getting worse. They go from hopeless, ultimately, uh, to, to what seems catastrophic here. And we're left thinking hope must be lost. That, that this, is, this has got to be it by all accounts because David's potential reign as king is now turning in not just to a condition of fear and darkness in the cave, but now it's turned into this bloodbath. That this is a dreadful day. God, God made promises. But things only seem to be getting worse and more distressing. We went from a cave to now the mass murder of priests in Israel. This is, this is just really, really bad. And while we feel ourselves removed uh, from this passage, both historically, obviously, and then in the immediate circumstances of what's going on here, while we feel ourselves experientially removed from this on the one hand, at the same time, we can recognize something that is identifiable for us here just in the general sense of, of the alarming dread that's present. Because at this point, God has promised good. He has promised a king after his own heart who's going to come and deliver his people. In fact, David's even proved he can be that guy. David delivered the people from Goliath's, uh, the, the, the fear they had of Goliath. David's proved he can be that guy. And we can find ourselves in those places where we recognize that, that God has promised good to us. It's a verse of amazing grace, isn't it? The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. Right? He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. We recognize that God has promised good to us, to sustaining grace in our life. But then the days come. And those, those lows we can face are so low that we find ourselves not loving what we love. Right? The pain becomes acute and, and we can't see clearly that there's any hope to be had. There's confusion that can run so deep. It, it just doesn't seem that the Lord could possibly be doing any of the kind of good He promises in the midst of these kinds of things that we're facing. So these, these aren't just bad days. These are categorically different kind of days. These are dreadful days. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I bet there would be a lot of hands that went up if I asked how many of you have had those days where it, it seems the Lord can't possibly be doing the good He promised given the circumstances of my life right now. We've had those experiences of darkness. That's a First Samuel 22 kind of day. The Lord promised David a place on the throne as the deliverer of God's people. And instead, where are we? David's on the run. And Saul's executing dark orders to kill the priests of Yahweh. Right? What, what, what in the world is happening here? These, these are dreadful days in Israel. And as we come to a passage, we, we, we can recognize the fact that there is something identifiable to us. While our circumstances are different. How, how do we deal with these kind of days? Days where God has promised good, but we're feeling the weight of the darkness. How do we deal with these kinds of things? And ultimately, what we have is, is, a, is, a, is an encouraging answer for us. This passage doesn't end in dread. This passage actually ends in a great deal of hope because, because while the dread sets in to be sure in, in what's going on here, we see by the end of all this that God isn't gone, uh, but His purposes stand as He saves and preserves and, and promotes His goodwill for, for His people. There's life for us here in this passage, even though everything is so shrouded in death. And so let's, let's look at this together. We're, we're going to think about this whole section under, if we just put a banner over it, we'd call it something like hopeful assurance for dreadful days, something, something of that nature. And, and as we start in, we're actually going to be taken down into some dreadful circumstances twice. First of all, we have Saul who is depicted here in a punctuated kind of way as a, as a really, really dreadful king. 
And then after that, Saul is going to, to call for some really, really dreadful action. So for the first two sections, we go down a little bit until, we, until we're brought up uh, finally in the end. So first of all, verses 1 to 10, if you keep an eye on that, we have, we have a dreadful king. A dreadful king. Sorry, verses 6. Uh, oh, I've got off on my own verse count here. Not 1 through 10. We already did 1 through 6. Verses. See, this is where I get into trouble, people. I need to leave them on. Can't read my... Yeah, 6 through 10, sorry. So 6 through 10. Um, now here, here's, one, here's one thing we can put together just to set the context a, a little bit more in terms of the immediacy of what's happening. We're going to look at, obviously, chapter 23, Lord willing, next week. But chapter 23 is actually the setting, uh, time-wise, there's an overlap in which all of the chapter 22 Saul stuff is taking place. So in chapter 23, we actually have David who's, who's engaged with, the, uh, a battle with some Philistines. He's helping rescue um, so, so some people there over in Keilah. That's going on while this is all going on with, with Saul. And, and we know that from verse 6 of chapter 23 where he recounts this priest fleeing to David in verse 6 of chapter 23 that is a mirror image of what's going on at the end of our chapter. So the priest fleeing thing ties these two pieces together. So we're meant to understand that while chapter 22 is happening, David is off bringing relief to some people in Judah who are under the significant threat from the Philistines. So that's what's going on, which helps make sense of, of the very first uh, line here where we're told that, that Saul gets, gets news David has been discovered. So, so why is David discovered? Well, he's out doing battle against the Philistines. People are going to figure out this is David and his men out here fighting, and Saul hears about that because David's not hiding. He's out saving the Israelites over in Keilah. And, and what do we find Saul doing during this time that some Israelites over in Keilah need saving? What's Saul doing? Well, Saul gets the news as he's doing what he always seems to do on important days of battle. What's he doing? He's sitting under a tree. Right? Same thing we had back in chapter 14 when Jonathan had to go out and, and fight the battle for the people. Saul, who is supposed to be king, who wants to be king, at least very badly, he, he should be out fighting for the people. But what is Saul doing? Again, there he is sitting under a tree when battle should be taking place. And, and then from there, things just go more downhill in these verses as we end up with this just miserable portrayal of Saul in the unfolding of, of these verses. So he's, he's just this dreadful king. So, so if you watch next, what happens? First we're told he's sitting under a tree, and then the next thing we read is what? He's got a spear in his hand, which if we're following the narrative at all is just a laughable situation. Because you remember that, that, that while a spear seems to be Saul's weapon of choice, he can't even hit somebody across the dinner table from him when, he, when he's throwing it at his own son Jonathan. He's got this long-range weapon he can't even make in the same, work in the same room as a shepherd boy who's playing the harp. So multiple times, three times so far in this narrative, Saul has hurled the spear at someone innocent trying to kill them, and he misses. Two times with David, one time with his son Jonathan. Well, they're all in the same room together. Saul and a spear together, laughable. So here we've got Saul sitting under a tree on a day of, of, of battle, and he's holding his spear, a non-threat, right? And, and, so, and so we move on from there as we keep going. And while Saul has heard uh, where David is, he starts whining at the men of his own tribe. So Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. The men of Benjamin are there with him. And apparently Saul starts fussing. 
because he's given his own tribesmen land and positions of power. He basically says, would David ever do for you what I've done for you? You know, I've made sure you've had land. I've made sure you've been in these positions of power, which, by the way, is something that Samuel had said a bad king would do back in chapter 8. Remember that? The bad king is going to take from you, and he'll disperse it. In other words, he'll do with that stuff as he wants. And that's exactly what Saul has done. He's shown favoritism to his own, to his own tribe. So, so, so apparently Saul's been taking stuff, giving it to his own tribesmen, and now in a sense he's calling them on it because he thinks they've conspired against him. He says, in effect, this Jesse's son, which is David, is David going to give you all the stuff I've given you? And yet, you haven't told me when my own son has conspired against me. So, so think about where Saul's mind is at here. He thinks that Jonathan has hatched this whole plan against him that, that all these Benjaminites must know about. And, and while Saul's right that Jonathan did make a covenant with David, um, we, re- we remember that was actually a covenant of friendship. And, and the rest of verse 8, what Saul says, it's totally wrong. So Saul's becoming increasingly paranoid, and he thinks that everybody but him knows about this elaborate plan that Jonathan has put in place somehow in collusion with David to, to lie in wait and ambush Saul. So Saul says they're going to ambush him, verse 8, which of course is nothing short of, of totally nuts. It's not remotely what, what they're doing. In fact, Saul's the one trying to ambush David. Saul's the one out to kill David. Jonathan and David aren't trying to kill Saul. In fact, David will have two very real and very easy opportunities to kill Saul in the upcoming chapters, and he won't do it. But Saul, the the, the useless king under the tree holding his useless weapon, he's paranoid. And, And he's accusing the people who he's already bribed, he's accusing them of not telling him about a conspiracy against him that doesn't even exist. So so it's just all madness on the part of Saul. He's angry that people aren't loyal to him. While he continues to be the picture of complete unfaithfulness and even now craziness at some level. So so Saul's on this conspiracy theory rant here. And who should speak up in verse 9? It's Doeg the Edomite. And in hearing that name, especially after we did our our fuller reading this morning, in hearing that name, we have a shiver that runs down our spine because Doeg's creepy, remember? Remember? He was lurking around back in chapter 21 when David was visiting those priests at Nob. He was creeping around in the background. That He didn't say anything, but he saw him elect the priest, give David the bread to eat, give him Goliath's sword and those kinds of things. Doeg was lurking at Nob then, and now Doeg speaks. And what does he say? Well, he completely takes advantage of this situation. It's helpful to know that Edomites are constantly portrayed as enemies of Israel throughout the Old Testament Narrative. So, so why in the world Doeg is even in a position of any kind among Saul is just strange. But Doeg speaks, and he speaks for the purposes of, of, of inflaming destruction, really, uh, because, because none of Saul's servants have anything to say about David and this whole conspiracy theory that Saul's got going on. But Doeg jumps right in and, and flares things up. He says that he saw David come to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob. And in verse 10, Doeg says, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him, and the priest gave him provisions. Doeg says, and guess what else, Saul? That priest even gave David Goliath's sword. Can can you believe it? You can almost see the snarl in Doeg's expression as he's fanning the flames of Saul's Saul's, uh, insanity here. And there's this malicious intent where Doeg is purposefully feeding into the paranoid delusions of Saul. We know if Doeg had been truthful, he would have also 
told Saul that David claimed to be there on the king's business, remember? When David was deceptive, and that's something that, that David himself is going to own here by the end of the chapter. He's going to recognize, I, should have been, I, sh- I shouldn't have done that because I'm now responsible for the death of all these priests. But David came, and he was deceptive. It's one of those ways we're helped to see that, that while David is the better king, he's not the king we really, really need. That David's not the perfect king. He, he was deceptive there. Um, and, and in that deception, though, he said he was on a mission for the king. So Ahimelech, as far as the priests knew, he was, he was still serving the king in all of this. Of course, Doeg doesn't share any of that. All he does is look to feed this destruction in Saul's heart. And, and as the next section shows, Saul's going to believe him. So Saul's happy to believe him, um, which, which just punctuates the reality that we keep seeing in the life of Saul and that Saul ultimately has no regard for God's word. That's punctuated again here. Uh, because without getting into the weeds, there's a, a, bun- a, bu- a bunch of language and even the imagery here sets us up as a, as a kind of court scene that Saul has called around him. And, and as Saul has called this court scene around him, he's doing the opposite of what the law of God clearly says when there's witnesses against, against people. So like Deuteronomy 19, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses can a charge be established. He doesn't ask anybody else about the situation. Doeg, the Edomite's word is good enough for him. And, and he ultimately will run with that. Uh, so again, here he is totally disregarding the word of God, ends in destruction, all of those kinds of things. Uh, but, but if we just stop here for a moment, and we could even keep listing stuff, but, but we can see that the point is made again, and it's been made so repeatedly, and even here from every angle possible, Saul, Saul is a dreadful king. He's just a bad king. He, he doesn't fight like a king should fight when enemies are around. He doesn't manage the land that is allotted to the people properly, showing favoritism, giving land to, to, to his people, to the Benjaminites. Right? He, he, he can't throw a spear. We know that about him. So, so he won't fight like a king, and he can't fight like a king. And, and, then he's, and then he's consumed by this self-centered, what do we call it, this narcissistic paranoia. Everybody's out to get me. And then on top of all that, he takes the word of an Edomite, he takes the word of a historic enemy of Israel, and believes the worst about the priests of Yahweh. It's a total disregard for, for God's truth and God's, and, and God's uh, revelation and all of these things. So Saul's just a, just a bad king. But in that, Saul is also a reminder. And he's a reminder because those, those, those dreadful conditions, those dreadful days even, are often fueled by disordered trust. The, the people of Israel are suffering under Saul but, but that really shouldn't be news to us because Samuel told them, Samuel the prophet, the spokesperson for God, told them back in chapter 8 that you're not trusting in God, but a king like the nations when you're choosing Saul. And alternatives to the living God, how do they end? They end badly. This isn't life for you. And we just keep getting reminded about this from the narrative here with Saul. We, we, we need to pay attention to it simply because the narrative so repeatedly emphasizes it. So we keep bringing it up. But, but here's the thing. What, what is contrary to trusting in God, what is contrary to God's good way, is so often, as we see in this text, immediately attractive. Saul stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Remember when we were introduced to him? He looked kingly. He looked like the relief and the savior the people wanted. But appearances never usurp God's truth. Did you remember how in Proverbs the harlot is described when she's trying to seduce the young man? The dad and his son are talking and he's he's warning his son about this. And the dad tells the boy she's beautiful and her eyelashes are captivating, he says in Proverbs 6. 
But then what does the dad say to his, to his boy in Proverbs? He doesn't say, you know, she, she's very pretty, son. You should pursue her. No. The dad says, you can't embrace fire and not have your clothes get burned. You can't hug a fire and not catch on fire yourself, son. That's what the dad says. Externals may look like they're going to bring what you're longing for, but when it's contrary to God's design, what ultimately is going on? Well, death is there. Destruction is there. So it's, it's dreadful days when hope is placed in the dreadful king. And so we can just check ourselves by this. And, and, and we need to set that in its proper place because dreadful days in our lives aren't always the product of misplaced trust. The book of Job teaches us that. And not only that, but Jesus himself, Jesus endured the most dread of all and he lived a life of totally, total holy perfection and trust constantly. So as Christian believers, we always have to have this categorically uh, emphasized in a, prop, in a proper way. Dreadful days are not always a product of misplaced trust and sin and those kinds of things, but sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. We can find ourselves in situations of deep hurt because we've placed our hope in something that was alluring, though it ultimately ended up being very, very soulish. Right? To, to begin with, seemed like Saul was such a good idea, tall and handsome and all those things. But now what's he doing? Well, he's sitting under this tree fussing and bringing about death instead of life. So we can, we can just check our hearts by this. I check mine as, as I ask you to do the same. Have there been some shiny and attractive alternatives to trusting and obeying the living God that have been present in my life lately? We need to think well about this. Maybe it's thoughts indulged that, that seem pleasant, but are contrary to God's way. Maybe it's plans in the works that, that seem relieving, but are contrary to God's design. Uh, actions that reflect hoping in something other than God's life-giving word. What we see here, those things don't end in life. They may look good to begin with, but the end is sorrow. The end is disaster. You can't hug fire and be okay. So look at this tall king now. He's, he's reduced to a paranoid mess. So, so is the true reality of all things contrary to God's, to God's way of life. is disastrous. So Saul's a dreadful king. And so, and so it's no surprise as we keep going, as we get into verses 11 to 19, that the dreadful king, what does he do? Well, he calls for dreadful actions, which is what's next. So verses 11 to 19, we'll summarize this here quickly, but, but what a gnarly section. So based on what Doeg says, Saul calls Ahimelech, that priest from No, back from chapter 21, Saul calls the priest along with his whole family, the priest's whole family, to come and explain himself. So why did you conspire against me, Ahimelech? First of all, Saul thinks it's the Benjamites who are conspiring against him. Now he, now he thinks it's, it's uh, the, the priest over here. And verses 14 and 15, Ahimelech says, what, what in the world is the problem? He defends himself very logically. He says, yeah, I helped David. Of course, of course, and here's a bunch of reasons why David's faithful, and he, he, he's also your son-in-law, right? And if I'm not uh, confused, he's the captain of your bodyguard, and he's honored in your household. And as for inquiring of the Lord, you know, seeking God's will for David, what should David do next? As far as, far as doing that goes, I've done that a whole bunch of times for David. Why, why would you be upset about that now? Remember, David had even told Ahimelech that he was on a mission for Saul back in chapter 21. So this is a very logical defense on the part of, a, of, of the priest. Clearly, there's, there's uh, innocence represented, at least, at least on the surface level. We'll have to come back to that. But there's, uh, the, the priest has not violated the way Saul says that he has. However, Saul responds with, with total irrationality. He responds with total brutality even. 
and actually there's a fairly dark irony here because Saul responds uh, to the priest with, with God's language of judgment. It's actually the same language God uses in the Garden of Eden when he told Adam what would happen on the day he ate of the forbidden tree where God says in Genesis 2.17, on the day you eat of it, dying you shall die is the literal Hebrew there. And Saul, Saul takes the Lord's words of righteous judgment from Genesis. He makes them his own words of wicked judgment here. And Saul responds in verse 16 here, literally saying, dying you shall die. It's exactly Genesis 2.17. He condemns the priest to death. Dying you shall die. And not just you, Saul says, but your father's whole family. So then Saul turns to his bodyguards, the guards around him, and he says, kill them all. Kill them all right now. What an evil command. But of course, Saul's men, they won't do it in verse 17. It's just too horrific. They'll sit with Saul under the tree while he's being foolish. But, but this desecration of the sacred, killing the priest, this is, this is too much. And Saul's men won't do it. But guess who will? Doeg the Edomite. There he is. And Saul knows it. So the king says to Doeg, go and execute the priest. And Doeg does that much, and he does, does even more. Doeg, we're told, executes 85 priests that day. And not just them, uh, but Doeg strikes down the city of the priests. So everyone alive in the town of Nob dies uh, by, by Doeg's sword. So that's not just a bad day, that's, that's a dreadful day. That, that's a very dark day. I thought David was supposed to be king. He's a king after God's own heart. He's going to bring peace and relief to Israel. What in the world is happening here right now in the kingdom? Virtually all of God's priests are killed. And actually, you notice down in verse 21, we haven't got there yet, but in verse 21, while Doeg carried it out, the whole event is attributable in a responsibility kind of way ultimately to Saul. Verse 21, Saul killed the priests of the Lord. What a wicked king in his, in his commissioning of this death. But there's something that's here for us to see, and it's, it's this, if we just think this out for a moment. As humans, we recognize that we are not static creatures. As humans, we know that we're ever-changing creatures. That's true in our material situations in life. Uh, sometimes we have more money, sometimes we have less money. That's true in our physical body, sometimes healthy, sometimes sick. Sometimes our eyesight deteriorates. Right? It's true in our relationships, things change, don't they? In our personal preferences, we change in what we like, what we don't like. And, and that kind of change is true in our spiritual lives as well. There is no static neutrality for us in our humanness. It's just not who, who we are as people. And we see the darkest side of that truth with Saul. He, he didn't just reject the word of God and stay a kind of crummy, neutral king who just didn't accomplish much by way of policy. Saul changed. He, he, he went from dismissing the word of God to an outright disregard for the word of God to ultimately killing the priests who ministered according to the word of God. Saul changed. And, and in the life of Saul, even in the dreadful nature of this event, that change is put on display. For, for those who yield to God, ultimately for those who know Christ, the Apostle Paul in the New, in the New Testament, he can talk about how, how we change from one degree of glory to another. Right? We look forward to positive transformation in Christ-likeness in this life. We are creatures of change, and actually we glory in that as Christian believers. We look forward even to transcending death and resurrection transformation in the life to come. For those who follow the Lord, change is life. But for those who reject the Lord, it's not just that they're neutral. For those who reject the Lord, there's movement further and further and further toward death, further uh, away from God and, and, uh, and, the, and the life that he calls us to. 
Of course, God in his kindness can intervene with grace, and he does so in miraculous ways, and in, and in many times our own lives are a testimony to that. But there's always movement, and there's movement that's dangerous that we need to be aware of. As humans, there's no such thing as neutrality, and Saul's a picture of that. So we ask ourselves a question under a passage like this, even taken into the last few days into account, what direction am I going? What direction am I going? Am I going toward Christ? You know, O oh Lord, that I may know you more, that I may learn to obey you more, that I may trust in you more. Am I walking in that direction toward Christ? Or am I inching back away from the king? These verses depict for us a dreadful day, a day where, where one who should have done the will of God is actually dead set against those who align with God, and, and murderously so, so much so that the only reference we can find to the Word of God in this passage is one where he takes what God has said and twists it for his own sinister purposes. And it can seem like all hope is lost. It's over now for Israel, maybe. Right? The priests are dead. David's not the king's favorite anymore. There was a time when the king, you know, David seemed to be Saul's right-hand man. But now who's there with Saul all the time? Who's Saul calling on now? Doeg the Edomite, things have taken a turn, right? And it, and it seems like it might as well all be over. And so we wonder, is this, is this the end? But to that question, we have verses 20 to 23 for an answer. And in verses 20 to 23, we see that even in the most dreadful of days, hope remains. And we're actually showing this truth in two ways. And we'll do this briefly. Uh, but, but first of all, in these verses, we see that hope remains because even in the condition of dread, it is God's purposes that still stand in this passage. So, so in verse 23, we read how, how one from the community of the priests, Abiathar, he, he escapes this massacre and he flees to David. And he recounts the horrific events that occurred. And in Abiathar's coming, it, it can kind of serve to jog our memory. Because we remember back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel that Eli the priest, he was told because of his own um, inaction and because of his wicked son's actions, uh, because of all of that, Eli the priest and his whole family would ultimately die and even die violently. The Lord told Eli that through, through a prophet in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And he said anyone who's left in Eli's family will be a man of grief. So that was back in chapter 2. And this community of priests, which was destroyed, this community was Eli's family line. Ahimelech is the great-grandson of Eli. And Doeg the Edomite was a wicked and vile man who will be judged for his horrific and vile deeds. And Saul, the dreadful king, was a wicked and vile man who will be judged for this horrific order to kill. But even in the evil, what is still happening? Well, the word of the Lord as revealed to Eli by the prophet. God's word, dark as it may be, God's word has still been standing even on the dreadful day. Saul is responsible for his actions, but the, Lord promised, the Lord's promised judgment was carried out. And we see these two things taking place in the text, that even though there's darkness represented here, that does not mean the Lord himself is inactive in the lives of all, of, in, in the things that are going on here. He's actually fulfilling his word of judgment, which of course we know God is always faithful to fulfill his word, whether it's a word of life or a word of judgment. And it doesn't matter the, the, the malicious intent of humanity. His word will stand and nothing can thwart that. So much so that the, the New Testament church, the believers, they preached and prayed along these lines. You remember, remember Peter's sermon in, in Acts chapter 2? 
In fact, Peter put the whole thing, Peter put the whole thing in one verse when he speaks about what happened to Jesus and he said, though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, why was Jesus delivered up? God planned it, right? You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death. But we see God's good purposes coexisting with man's evil plans. But God's good purposes are going to stand. The early church preached about that, and the early church prayed in these ways. When they're under persecution in Acts chapter 4, they pray and say, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So you have these instances of even the evil that's being carried out is never such that it thwarts God's plan. And the cross of Christ itself is the high and climactic revelation of that truth. No matter the murderous intent toward Christ, ultimately, God's salvation plans stand. And so as we consider even the darkness of our own days, the genuine dread that can exist, we can see for those who follow Christ, for those to whom God has said He will bring about ultimate good in our life no matter what we face, for those to whom God has said, He will finish the good work that He's begun in you. For those to whom Jesus says, nobody can take you out of my hand. I will care for my people. I will protect my sheep. All of those kinds of things. God's good purposes will be uh, completed in the end because not even Doeg the Edomite can mess up God's plan. And so the Word of God stands despite the dark days and there's encouragement even out of the darkness in this. And you may just need that. The darkness that you're facing, it may be so heavy you think, where in the world can God be in all of this? And it's okay to sit with that. This is cloudy, I can't see it. But from the truth of God's word, we can know He's never absent. He may seem gone. It may seem like His purposes are not discernible at the moment. But the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose good purposes came through the darkness of the cross itself, He is the one who ultimately works for the good of His people. How could He not? He sent His own Son to pay the price for our sins. And so we have that word of encouragement here that in, in, the, in the dread, God's purposes still stand. And not just that, but we also see that there's safety with the king. Do you notice that is the last thing here? David, David is speaking to, uh, to, the, to the, the priest who flees to him. And he, he's taking responsibilities, recognizing, you know, I probably I should have done things differently there with the priest and been more clear because then... Uh, gave Doeg this opportunity. David feels very responsible for all that's happening. But then how does it finish? What is it like with the anointed king? He says, stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants, who wants to take my life, uh, wants to take your life. And then he says what? You will be safe with me. There's safety with the king. Even though it may seem like things are conspiring against the king, David, from his posture of faith, recognizes that there's safety with him because God's purposes will stand and he's going to be the king. He knows God will bring about what He said. And as we gather with God's ultimate King, with the ultimate King, Lord Jesus, we can recognize the same thing is true. There is ultimately nothing that can remove us from the love of God because of what we have in the good King Jesus. And so we come to a place of rest, even in the days that are cloudy and dreadful that we can't understand, that because God's Word proves true and because He said there's safety with His Son, I will ultimately be okay. I will persevere. I will keep on. I will not be lost because if God is for me, who can ultimately be against me? And that's the truth we have in this passage that moves through darkness, ultimately to a place of hope, very realistically, uh, but moves to a place of hope, uh, seeing that, that with the Lord's King, ultimately we're not left, but we're preserved. And we're thankful for that word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are thankful for your truth. 
We recognize that your purposes are grand and far beyond what we can understand at times. Uh, we know that if your, if your love is incomprehensible, as Paul speaks of it, uh, certainly your, your wisdom is far beyond anything we could ever measure. Uh, but we rest in it. We rest secure knowing that uh, the Lord Jesus has secured our place with you forever. And we ask, even as we face the darkness, that we would be reminded of that truth in a, in a very real way and be carried on uh, because we have that security. We're safe with the better King. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.